Today's scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Please turn in your Bibles with me, or you can follow along on the screen. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For your sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. I want to ask a quick question. Do we have any Texas A&M Aggies in the crowd? Let me see your hands. Oh, I'm sorry for the pain you bear. Actually, I have a great respect for Aggies, and um, I learned a lot about the Texas A&M Aggies and their traditions, their rich traditions, when I was at uh, Texas Tech years ago, marching in their band for three years. Uh, We always look forward to playing the Aggies and experiencing that tradition, especially at Kyle Field in uh, College Station. Uh, But one of those traditions, of course, is the infamous Corps, Corps of Cadets. Uh, This Corps is incredible in their marching skills. Their marching band is one of the best marching band institutions. In fact, it's the largest military band in the world. So it's a pretty very, well, it's very incredible to see them on the field marching. I won't attest to the sound of their music, but their marching is outstanding. There are also a lot of traditions that have to do with the freshman core members coming in. They have their high and tight haircuts that they wear, sharp uniforms, neatly pressed. The seniors, if you've seen seniors on campus at Texas A&M, they have these knee-length boots, these black boots that they have the privilege of wearing after they've earned it for three years as a corpsman. Now, the thing that I'd like to really focus on here a bit is the freshmen. Now, I'm not sure if they still do this. I know that COVID changed a lot of these things. But the last time I was on campus in the 90s, there was this whip-out ritual that they had for the freshman core members. When they're in uniform, of course, they have to walk on the sidewalks, not on the grass. When they're in uniform and they see an upperclassman core member, they run up to that core member and they get in step with that core member until the core member chooses to recognize the freshman cadet, the fish. And at that point, they engage in an elaborate ceremony of introduction. 
it's very fascinating to watch if you actually are on campus and see that early in the fall semester. These are freshman corpsmen learning to keep in step with upperclassmen as they learn to become core members. Well, the Apostle Paul uses very much this same analogy with us in keeping in step to describe our walk with Christ. In verse 25, he kind of summarizes that in our text today. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So today's question that I'd like to address with us is how do we keep in step with the Spirit? What does it look like? How do we do it? In our personal walk, in our families, in our church, and before our communities outside. Let's open up in prayer together as we start. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sovereignty. And Lord, we thank you that before the dawn of creation, you knew that we would be meeting here today and who would be present in this room. You are awesome and all-knowing. And Lord, I pray that you would bestow on us the grace of your presence this morning as we open your word and you teach us with your spirit. Lord, please take me out of the way of this calculation, my flaws and my failures, my inabilities. And Lord, open up our minds and hearts to you, to you alone. Speak to us through your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of every heart in this room this morning be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let's jump right into Galatians 5, into our passage this morning. I'm going to have to warn you, the middle section of this passage that we read this morning, while I thought it was important to read it to give the full context, we are not going to cover it for the sake of time. The part of the sinful nature, we're going to save that for another time and another place. I want to focus on the first part and the part where we're talking about the fruits of the Spirit. So let's, uh, let's jump right in to verse 16. And I'm reading out of the 1984 version of the New International Version. I know there's probably not very many of these out here. You can't even buy one today. But I like that translation because it reads so smoothly. And I cross-reference it, of course, always with the translations like the ESV, the New American Standard, New King James, all excellent translations. But today I'm reading out of that 1984 earlier edition of the NIV. In verse 16, Paul starts, he says, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another so that you do not do what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Brothers and sisters, we face a brutal fact. All of us in the world, not just us, but the lost world outside of us. The human sinful condition, the flesh, and the Spirit which lives in us as believers are in perpetual conflict. Those without Christ, of course, are slaves to this sinful nature. Uh, you know, while they have the capacity to understand right from wrong, after all, they were created in God's image. And Romans 1 tells us that from God's very nature through what has been made, they know Him and know what is right and wrong and are without excuse, 
Even though they have that condition and knowledge, they do not understand spiritual things, nor do they have the capacity to strive effectively with their sinful nature. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But we know, you and I, that in Christ, as Paul goes on to write in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, we are in fact, and I love this term, a new creation. The old sinful nature, while we still wrestle with it till the day we die, really effectually it is gone because God has forgiven us and cleansed us and established us as righteous in the face of that. We know where we're headed. He's planted the seal of the Holy Spirit in us, guaranteeing our inheritance in what is to come for us. It's a beautiful picture. But like I said before, while we remain in this body, both that nature, unfortunately, that we still live in, in this body of flesh, and our spiritual heart that is in the spirit inside of us vie for our hearts. We see that clearly in Romans 7, as Paul describes how that flesh and spirit struggle with him, within himself. But then he also says at the end of that passage, going into chapter 8, praise God, because we have access to the transforming power of the spirit who lives within us. It's that spirit that we want to talk about a little bit more, the results of that spirit being in us that we want to address a little bit more this morning. We have no condemnation, and that's good news, isn't it? That is the gospel, the good news. So in this life, we are never really released from the necessity of consciously and constantly choosing to go God's way, to keep in step with the Spirit daily. So what does keeping in the Spirit look like? Well, again, I want to refer to, I refer to Tom's sermon last week. He, uh, he, he had an example that I really loved that's so true. It's accurate. I mean, I know this from my work with the State Department in passports. He talked about the dollar bill and how does the Secret Service identify what is a counterfeit bill? Do they study all the counterfeits that are out there? No. They memorize the original, every intricate detail of it, so that when any counterfeit comes, they recognize it immediately. So, because verses 19 to 21 lays out, Paul lays out that the sinful nature is, uh, is obvious to us, he declares them as, to being, as being obvious, we're going to take the liberty this morning of skipping the things that are obvious to Paul, but let's move right into verse 22, where we talk about life in the Spirit. In verse 22, Paul writes, he continues, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. It's important to have a little distinction here. Let me just kind of pause for a moment and take a look at, of course, in verse 19, which we did not cover, we read, but we didn't cover, the word for sinful nature is acts, plural, because the sinful nature, by the way, after all, has multiple ways of expressing itself, doesn't it? 
I mean, we see it in our lives in a multitude of ways. We tend to have a blind side, blind spot on some of the ways we express our sinful nature and are very quick to look at the way other people express their sinful nature, aren't we? But there are many ways that it can be expressed. And as we studied earlier, several months ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit, that there are many gifts of the Holy Spirit that God distributes among His people for works of righteousness in the church to build up the church. We don't all have the same gift, but the gifts, plural, of the Spirit. What we look at here, though, is not a plural word. In the Greek, it is a singular word, fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. It's a singular, singular unity, very much like a, a bunch of grapes that come together. The fruit of the Spirit. Every Christian should exhibit the entirety of the fruit of the Spirit. We don't all have the same spiritual gifts, but the fruit of the Spirit we should all have. So let's take a couple, let's take a closer look at what this, uh, if you will, package of virtues looks like, going one at a time down through each one. Let's take a look at love. Love first. Of course, the word for love here is agape. The word in Greek, there are several, but the agape, of course, is the one that he uses here. We know that uh, agape is best illustrated, as Romans 5, 8 tells us, by Christ dying. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God expressed, demonstrated his love, his agape for us. We didn't recognize him. People did not recognize him. We had no idea who he was. We were his enemies in our heart, divided by the sin in our lives. But God bridged the gap and died for us so that we might have life in Christ. That is pure, unadulterated love in its purest, most holy form. And the love that we all aspire to emulate. It's the outward mark of a follower of Christ. In John 15, or I'm sorry, John 13, verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples, by this all men will know who you are, or will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, that whole chapter talks about love. It's one of my favorite chapters. And I use that every time I go into a wedding ceremony and do it. Yes, love, love. That picture of love. But 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says it's the greatest of all, the greatest of all, referring to the gifts that he's just talked about, the spiritual gifts. Let's go through those things that the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 discusses. It says that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. I love this one. It keeps no record of wrongs. Forgiveness. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. It always perseveres. And best of all, love never fails. Never fails. The true agape, godly love demonstrated by Jesus, our master, never fails. From this virtue, from this one virtue of love, 
I believe all the others emanate. I don't think you can have any of the others without this one. So let's move on down to joy. It's important to realize that uh, the joy that we're talking about here is not happiness. You know, we hear a lot about the pursuit of happiness. There was a movie about that years ago. I think Will Smith was the actor in it. But, you know, that's a big thing. It's in our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness, as if that's some great, wonderful ideal. And it's like chasing a dog or a dog chasing its tail, isn't it? Because happiness is dependent really on your circumstances. It's going to change from today to tomorrow depending on what your circumstances are. You can lose your happiness in a blink. But as I'm going to describe in just a moment here, joy is something that's lasting that you can't lose like that. Let me give you a definition of joy. I've kind of searched around and this is the one I really like. It says, joy is the deep spiritual wellness and oughtness, if you will, that is the byproduct of being in right relationship with our Creator. It's the reason that a guy like Horatio Spatford, when his wife and children, when his, when his daughters die, are drowned in the, in the ocean voyage across the sea, and he hears about it through telegram, can write the great hymn, It is well with my soul. That's the kind of joy that we're talking about. Jesus elaborates, Jesus elaborates on this concept even further. In John 15, 11, he says, I have told you this so that my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, in the context here, Jesus has just described his parable of the vine and the branches, what it means to be in Christ, and we draw our spiritual health and nourishment from Him, but we also find in this passage that His joy, His joy is actually in us. In other words, whatever it is that, that Jesus is having joy about in heaven right now, through the power, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living in us, is now in us, not our joy, Jesus's joy. I don't think there is such a thing as my joy, because my joy is happiness. It comes and it goes. John Piper puts it this way. He writes, his joy in whatever it is that he is joyful in is in us. We are not just rejoicing over what we know about Jesus. We are rejoicing with the very joy of Jesus over what he knows about everything, especially what he knows about the Father. So the fruit of joy is obtained supernaturally when we live life by the Spirit. Only then can we stand with the prophet Nehemiah and say, truly, the joy of the Lord, of the Lord, is my strength. Peace. I love it in Israel. They have the greetings back and forth. In Hebrew, the one that everybody says in coming in and going is, you know it, shalom. It's basically the equivalent to the Greek word that Paul uses here for peace, but shalom, peace. It's still prevalent in Israel. And I love to see that. But it's interesting, in our fallen condition, we do not exist in a natural state of peace. We do not, 
Our world does not. Peace, rather, is God's gift to man. That's why Jesus in Isaiah 9-6 is called the Prince of Peace. Through Christ, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 reads, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we have peace of heart and mind. People talk all the time about, oh, I just need to have peace of mind, you know, and they go through all kinds of contortions and, and, and rituals to get that peace of mind. But let's see what Paul says to the Philippians about this. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Through Christ, we have peace in the world. The heralding angels announcing the birth of Jesus declared, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Doesn't say that we're going to have a peaceful world, does he? That didn't, that didn't, uh, that, the promise didn't include that. But it did include that God's peace would be with those with whom God is well pleased. Those who are of the Lord's. Through Christ, and I love this one, we have peace in the home, don't we? Through Christ, we have peace in the home. We have a beautiful model in Ephesians 5 and 6 about what the home should look like. Wives submitting to their husbands honorably. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. Children obeying and honoring their parents. And children, let me just say a word to you. This is so important. There's a difference, boys and girls and young men and young women, between obeying your parents and honoring them. One of the Ten Commandments instructs you and me as a grown person. My parents are passed away, but I think, I'd like to think that I honored them till the day they died. But the Ten Commandments, one of them says that you must honor your parents so that you may live long. And then there's a warning again in here, I think, for us fathers not to exasperate our children. What in the world does that mean? Exasperate. I think it's frustrate them to the point where they're angry with you or, or can't deal with things. We can promote that and produce that in our children, fathers, especially fathers. And I think that's why Paul gives that warning to us. So, men, I really want to just give a charge to you at this moment. It is our charge from the Lord to set a tone in our families that resonates with the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Timothy, Timothy 5.8 says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, we typically take that passage, that provision word provide, to mean the provision of the physical things that our family needs, shelter, a roof over our heads, food, clothing, the necessities of life, the physical 
things that we need to exist and survive. But taking a look at that Greek word, pronoia, the Strong's Greek lexicon definition of this brings in the idea of forethought, provision, forethought, providential care, making provision for something. So men, may I suggest to you today and to me that our most important provision for our family is a godly example. I suggest to you that we need to be living every day fresh in the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We cannot ultimately control what our children will become, but we can and must establish a godly example within our families expressed by a consistent demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit at home. Which leads us to patience, a quality greatly required in the home, isn't it? <laughs> I, have, I know Elaine has found that to be so with me. The idea of patience includes the uh, tones of waiting, enduring, forbearance, long-suffering, the quality of putting up with others when you're severely tried by them, and maybe I should add, when we are severely tired of them, you know, that happens too. Patience, however, fosters peace with others, doesn't it? Patience. How often we have, when we have had patience and we don't push the send button on that email, that we avoid the conflict that we would create when we express our anger without waiting and reflecting on it and being patient on it. Proverbs 15, 18 says, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. And patience is also closely connected to wisdom, to wise thinking. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, 11. And I tell you, I need to remember that every time somebody gets up behind me, rides my bumper, buzzes around me, honks, gets in front, and does an obscene gesture at me. That's an offense. And what, my, what is my first response? Well, kind of like Tom's last week, shake my fist and, you know, that kind of thing. But it's to our glory to overcome that offense, to overlook that offense. Remember also that we just heard in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patience. Patience takes the time to listen to others and to understand. Then we go to kindness, and I think kindness and goodness are very closely aligned. Uh, kindness, I think we have a wonderful example in Scripture, the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, who steps outside of his own world to notice and respond in love to a need in front of him. Goodness really is what the Old Testament means when it declares that God is good. Psalm 34, 8, one of my great favorite verses is, taste and see that the Lord is good. I hope that every one of us in here this morning can declare with certainty over the last week that we have at some point 
sat with the Lord and tasted Him and declare that He is good. Because only when we do that can we, can we live by the Spirit and exude these fruit, this fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about today. It's only as we spend time with Him and walk with Him, pray, read your Scripture, follow Him throughout the day that we can do these things. Micah 6.8, I love this definition of goodness. It's probably the ultimate definition. Micah says, the prophet in the Old Testament, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to humbly walk with your God. Micah 6.8. Faithfulness in context refers to what makes a person one on whom others can rely. Trustworthiness, reliability can be depended on. Beautiful picture in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea describes this faithfulness as God commands Hosea to take the adulterous wife Gomer. And we see how Hosea is time and time and time and time again faithful to Gomer, although she is an unfaithful adulterous wife. Of course, reflecting upon our own condition, our unfaithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness to God and His everlasting, non-swerving faithfulness to His people. He will accomplish His purposes in us. We can take it to the bank. He is faithful. Faithfulness is reflected in the one willing to die for his confession of Christ. In Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna that we see in Revelation 2. And of course, 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us that God remains faithful even when we are faithless. Gentleness is the care in which we take to relating to others. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. It's also a manner in which we are charged to face opposition. 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 2.24-25 in the ESV says or writes or says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness correcting his opponents with gentleness. I want to take a second just to, to take a sidebar here. Kind of a warning to us all. You remember Ronald Reagan back in the day, the great famous axiom that he said, and it was, a, it was, a, it was an axiom for Republicans all throughout the 80s and 90s until recent years. Speak no ill of your fellow Republicans. And it was pretty much held true to. Well, let me suggest that we should speak no slander to our fellow believers when they don't believe quite like we do, or they do things a little bit differently than we do. There are a lot, many, many trolling so-called biblical scholars out there on the internet, social media, YouTube, who would do well to learn a lesson 
in humility and gentleness. Those who attack other, and I'm using this word deliberately, genuine, other genuine, well-meaning Christian leaders with whom they may disagree on the finer points of theology or methodology. Now, what I want to be clear here now is that I'm not referring to many, many false teachers that are out there. Those who peddle their own commercialized version of the gospel for profit, or those who distort the true gospel or add to it in a way that obscures the way to Christ beyond recognition. So those false teachers we must call out and expose. Another lesson, though, about gentleness in our handling of our faith is the way we use Scripture and the way we use God's Word. It grieves me, and I've seen this time and time again throughout the course of my 40 years of following Christ, when one Christian, I mean, this is difficult to describe, and it's often subtle. It's always disguised in piety and good intention. But when one Christian uses God's Word to beat down someone else that's already downtrodden. I've seen it time and time again, and I think it is a, it's ugly and it's a grave sin. And we need to guard against using God's Word to beat others down. We use God's Word to correct and to lift us up and to draw us to Him. I can think of nothing more like the practice of of the Pharisees than this, or less like the character of Christ. And finally, we come to self-control, and I love this one. The quality that gives us victory over the desires of our sinful nature. Discipline, inner fortitude bestowed by the Holy Spirit, and the ability, we used to tell our kids this, the ability to say no to yourself. Uh, Pete Quaid and I, I think Pete's here this morning, he and I go on Tuesday evenings down to the, or up to the prison in Bonham, and we have this ministry through Bridges to Life, and a tremendous ministry. Love to see God working through weeks, through several weeks in the lives of these inmates. But as I see these men and hear their stories and grieve about what they've been through and what they've done to others, one thing comes into play that is common among all of them. It's the absence of self-control. We must have self-control in our lives. Uh, there's another example I like to think of, you know, these, uh, well, there are people that, that you see on TV all the time. I see this when I watch the news, and I'm trying more and more not to watch the news because it's so depressing, isn't it? But when I do, and when this happens, I usually turn the TV off now, but you'll see someone talking about something to someone who is really truly an expert in that field. You've got a nobody in that field addressing as if he knows something to a somebody. And what's really nice to see is when that somebody in the field is kind and and doesn't snap back and slam down the nobody who really knows nothing and is not talking in their will of understanding. 
I have to tell you, my tendency is that I want everybody to think that I am the somebody. I mean, that's, that's been my tendency throughout life. And I have to work on that sinful nature to keep it down, to make sure that I don't think more highly of myself than I should. I don't know if you have that, that, that tendency in you or not. I think a lot of us do. But that is sin. And we can look at Christ for a solution to that. I mean, for the life of me. I can't get my head around the self-control that Jesus expressed when he died for us on the cross. I can't, I can't get my head around it. Paul says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Self-control. Well, keeping in step, what does it really look like? What does it mean? There's an illustration I like to use on this point of a prism. I think we all know what a prism is. Prism is a piece of glass, formed glass or crystal of some way, of some form. And when you shine sunlight through it, light from the sun, it always reflects the same color. It, it refracts that light, divides it, and it shines that light into all the different colors that you see in the rainbow. So it takes a prism to refract that light so that you can see it. The light is there. It's there when we walk outside. But we don't see those colors, do we, until we refract that light from the prism. And the prisms that they have come in many, many different shapes and sizes. You know, the one thing that they do is when they get the sun, capture it, they refract into those colors. And aren't we a lot the same way in our lives? The glory of God is out there around us all the time. But God has given us the unique opportunity with His Spirit living in us to be that refracting tool to show people that we come into contact with God, what He is like, the fruit of the Spirit exuding out of us. So what do we communicate to our community? <laughs> uh, how do you treat your spouse when he or she irritates you in some way? How do we present that out in the community when we're out with people? How do you treat your children when they mess up really big or when they mess up in public? How do you treat your employees, your bosses, or your coworkers? How do you react to the driver who cuts you off at the intersection? And how do you respond to the checkout clerk who overcharged you or the fast food server that got your order all wrong? or the table server who forgot your tea. I have an example from my own life here, and it's a sad example, but Elaine and I were working uh, years ago, 1987, the summer at a youth camp called Centrifuge out of Glorieta, New Mexico. I think we're getting a little feedback here. I can hear it in the front here. That's, thanks, much better. Uh, we were working in Glorieta all summer with a team about 20 young men and women who were working these youth camps 
of hundreds of children each week, hundreds of young people each week. And we had a very short break between each week so that we could regather our thoughts. And we, we, as a team, went out and drove up into the mountains, into a remote area, and did some river rafting and just enjoying each other and having some relaxation time. But the thing about it was, when we drove our car and we got out, I gave the keys to Elaine to get something out of the car, and she locked our keys in the car. Here we are, 45 miles out, no way to get into the car, and she locked the keys into the car. Now, I wish I could tell you that I responded with kindness to my wife. I wish I could say that. <laughs> you know, my response was ugly, angry, even demeaning. I was visibly agitated. I tell you what, if an unbeliever had seen me at that moment, there would have been no evidence whatsoever that Christ had made an impact in my life. I can only imagine, you know, what my, my ministry team thought. But I tell you what, I will, there's one thing I'll never forget, I will always remember, is the look of deep hurt and disappointment on Elaine's face. That's a hard lesson in sin that I've tried my best through the years not to repeat. So what does the world need most to see in us? Well, let me offer that it's probably not our, our CRC t-shirts and coffee cups. Although, Andrew, sign me up for one of those the next time you come and get them online here. I want one. I'll even suggest that it's not a new well-designed church facility out on the 380 bypass, although we all look forward to moving into something like that, hopefully in the near future. And it hopefully will be a great tool to reach people. But it's not what the world most needs to see in us, is it? The world doesn't most need to see a well-developed uh, roster of ministries that we have here at CRC. It doesn't most need to see an exciting worship ministry, although that worship ministry that we have here is exciting, and I love it, and it, it contributes greatly to our worship and our fellowship together. But that's not what they're looking for the most. It's not even our solid doctrine, theology, or scholarship, although these are critical to us. They are highly important. Before the lost world around us ever begins to see and appreciate any of these, it needs to see consistency in us as we walk with Christ. Not a perfect life, none of us are perfect, but I will add that when we fail, we are quick to recognize it, ask for forgiveness, repent and move on. Recognize and admit our flaws. There's power in that among people around you. Not a life based on rules, but it's a life that is actively and, as I said before, freshly encountering God, daily overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit in your life. The miracle of our resurrected, transformed, transformed lives validates the authenticity of Christ's Redeemer Church. Let me repeat that. The miracle of our resurrected, transformed lives validates the authenticity of Christ Redeemer Church, because that is something that only God can do. It was that way in the first century. It's been that way throughout 
all the great movements in church history, and it's that way today. How many homeowners do we have in here? Got a lot of people that own their own home. Let me see your hands. Yeah, quite a few. I know a lot of people do, you know. So you're familiar with the term equity, what that means. Real estate owners, you know, we especially know what equity is in this last couple of years. Our equity's risen quite a bit, but if you owned a home back in 2007, might not have been quite so. But uh, equity is that value that grows in our investment as we go on. Well, our life, we all agree, would agree, is a gift from God. And forgive me for using this simplistic, un, un, uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? Not sufficient, insufficient, insufficient example. But let's just call for a moment the life that God has given us his capital investment in the world. Now, that's a little bit of a crass, but, but let's get, your, to get our heads around this, what we are. We are God's representatives in this lost world. As a capital investment, we build equity with people from the way that we live. Now, this doesn't affect our salvation whatsoever, but it has much to do with our effectiveness in making an impact for Christ. Some people end up with negative equity at the end of the day, don't they? Others may spend their equity selfishly on their self-promotion or on material gain. But others, which I hope and pray is us, spend that equity on the gospel. Paul writes in the Philippians chapter 1, 27, whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. As I close today, I'm going to use one more example of my personal life. My little daughter, Allison, she's now 27. Oh, 28, 28. But uh, at three years old, we were living in Texas City and we were potty training this young lady. I think a lot of parents in here know what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a process. And Allison was doing very well, but one evening she had a midnight potty accident. She was crying. She came into our room. She was beside herself. We got up and we were sleepy eyes, tired. I had a major ministry event the next day that I had to, to get after. So I just did not feel like getting up. But we cleaned her up, kind of get, got everything set like it was supposed to be, started to put her to bed, and she was beside herself because she couldn't find her toy. She had a little tiny toy dinosaur, little bitty thing, this big, and, and she couldn't find it. She had lost it. She went to bed with that thing every night. She took it everywhere with her, and she had lost it, and she couldn't get to bed without it. And I'm, my, my knee-jerk reaction, I have to tell you, is, sweetie, Give it a rest. <laughs> Sweetie, grow up a little bit, you know? Daddy's got to go to work tomorrow, you know? And that's what I wanted to say and do. But the Holy Spirit, thank God, intervened in my heart. He intervened. He told me to stop, notice, and find it for her. So I did. I pulled it, pulled back the bed, and thank, thank goodness for, 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 for my sake, God allowed me to find that thing quick, you know, because I found it and gave it to her, and, and we were done. 
But by finding that, I validated what was important to her. And in doing so, I validated her as my daughter. I demonstrated my love for her. And in doing that, I built equity with my little girl. In a way that I used later as we led her to the Lord. I have to, to finish the example. The icing on the cake was this. After we put her to bed, I looked over at Elaine, and her response was a big smile of approval. Quite a contrast from 10 years earlier. As we close, I want to challenge each of us, and I am right there with you guys. We need to remember that in the checkout line, on the telephone line, at the business table, at the breakfast table, relating out in the world or relating in church or in our homes, that the way we live our life in the Spirit matters always. Consistency as we live by the Spirit counts always. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ Jesus. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are laid bare before you this morning. Your word, as a two-edged sword, pierces our souls and reveals to us the sin that we need to confess, that we need to overcome. But we know, Lord, that we can only do this in the power of your Spirit. So, Lord, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would cultivate in us these seeds of truth that we've gained from your Word. Lord, I pray that you would grow in our lives a, a harvest of the fruit of righteousness that we're talking about as we learn to live by the Spirit of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.